From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Wednesday, June 13th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The U.S. and Russia spar over Syria. That highlights new tensions between the two former Cold War adversaries. The Cold War is over, but the Cool War is on, and clearly Russia is on the other side of that. And today, phosphorus, a key element for food production, but this environmental engineer had no idea where it came from. I even once asked a farmer friend, where does phosphorus come from? And his answer was Agway. He didn't even know. These stories and more coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is not backing down on her criticism of Russia. Today, Clinton called on Russia to stop sending weapons to the government in Syria. Yesterday, she accused the Russians of sending attack helicopters to the regime of President Bashar al-Assad. She said the move risks escalating the Syrian conflict dramatically. Russia's response was to deny it sending any weapons that could be used by the government against civilians. Moscow did admit, though, that it's fulfilling previously existing contracts to supply Damascus with air defense military systems. Pavel Felgenhauer is a military analyst for the Moscow newspaper Novaya Gazeta. He says that the Russian government's support for the Assad regime in Syria is more than political. About 10 years ago, Moscow wrote off more than... $10 billion of Syrian old arms debt, in the understanding that the Syrians will buy more and pay cash. And so right now, imposing an arms embargo would mean that all outstanding contracts will be lost, all payments that are in the pipeline will not reach the Russian arms trading uh, companies. And since the same thing more or less happened just a year ago with Libya, when Russia agreed to an armed, tacitly to an arms embargo, uh, and Russian arms sellers say this uh, lost billions of dollars, now the position is we won't do it as in Libya. We will not allow any arms embargoes at all. So you're saying that the the pressure by the arms dealers, uh, the financial pressure, rings more true and more loudly in the Kremlin than the international political pressure to stop arming the Syrian government. Absolutely. I mean, these guys are personal friends of President Vladimir Putin. They're closely connected. Actually, they're connected to the KGB. They're connected to the St. Petersburg clan ruling Russia right now. So uh, anytime uh, their influence is more than the influence of the international community or the uh, Arab Muslim, Sunni community, world community, yes, of course. Since we're getting contradictory statements coming from Moscow saying that it is not sending helicopters or such weaponry, uh, and, and the United States, Hillary Clinton saying, yes, indeed you are, and stop, what does your reporting tell you? Maybe they're both saying the truth. For the Middle East, Russia is good Ukraine and Belarus and, many, and several other former Soviet republics. So weapons from there may be reaching uh, Syria. 
weapons that the Syrians actually need for their campaign against the opposition. Uh, but these weapons may not be sent by the Russian official uh, arms trading monopoly, but by freelancers. If Russia, quote-unquote, loses Syria, I mean, if the Assad regime is doomed, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed before that happens. What does this mean to Russia? small uh, naval base in Syria, well, that's symbolically more important. Uh, we have uh, military advisors since the Cold War still working there with the Syrian military. We have a close relationship, a very close relationship, with the Syrian intelligence services uh, between Russian and Syrian intelligence. So Syria has been for many decades a kind of important uh, intelligence hub for the Russians in the Middle East. And actually, this is our last foothold left there. And if we lose that foothold, it's understood that Russia won't have much influence or uh, intelligence presence left in the Middle East. Uh, So this is seen as a very serious loss, and it's not clear what we win if we uh, go with the international community. In Libya, we won nothing. That's Pavel Felgenhauer, a military analyst in Moscow. John Arquilla is chair of the Special Operations Program at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He studies Russia's military actions and relationships around the globe. Arquilla says that the Russian military's support of the Syrian government is key in many ways. Well, I think the Assad regime requires continuing military assistance in terms of arms and munitions. Uh, But more importantly, they need uh, good advice as to how to deal with an insurgency. And this is something the Russians are also providing, as they've had a great deal of counterinsurgency experience in Chechnya. And what is the reason that Russia would want to prop up the regime that is under so much international pressure? I mean, what what does Russia get from providing potentially weaponry and also counsel? I think that Syria offers them a kind of last foothold uh, in the Middle East. They, of course, remain on relatively friendly terms with Iran, but are even there putting pressure on the Tehran regime to stop proliferation efforts. Uh, Syria is one of those places where uh, the Russians can look to a a continuing place at the table in determining the course of events. And and certainly after uh, the situation in Libya in which they assented to a United Nations and NATO action against the Gaddafi regime, uh, they're unlikely to, uh, in their view, uh, sell out the regime in Damascus. Well, selling out or succumbing to pressure that is being put on Russia right now, I want to take a larger look at Russian-U.S. relations now because there was a fairly sizable pushback when presidential contender Mitt Romney called Russia the geopolitical foe for America. Many people consider that a real throwback to the Cold War. I wonder what you, as a military specialist with an eye on Russia, make of Mr. Romney's assessment. Well, the Cold War is over, but the Cool War is on, and clearly uh, Russia is on the other side of that. And it seems to me they do remain in uh, what Romney calls geopolitical terms a very great nation. H.G. Uh, Wells once said a great nation suffers but does not die. And that's certainly true of Russia. They're uh, smart. They have a lot of nuclear weapons. They've come through a great deal of economic and social adversity. And they're beginning to reassert themselves on the world scene. And so what does that mean right now? I and mean, what, what are you seeing? We've, we've covered the protests that have been going on that the Putin administration has cracked down on. But what are you seeing that would say that Russia is going to remain a considerable foe? 
Well, the most important thing is that they're rediscovering some very old ideas in, in Russian strategic thought and that go back to uh, the invasion by Napoleon, which will uh, have its 200th anniversary next week. A young officer by the name of uh, Davidov came up with the idea of uh, nimble, small, networked forces operating deep behind the lines, did a great deal of damage to Napoleon's forces, and uh, Russian military thought has moved decisively in this direction. We live in an era where the small group is empowered, and if it's networked, it gets even more powerful. The Russians understand this, and by the way, they understand it in cyberspace as well, uh, where they're using cyber war techniques. They did in their war with Georgia in 2008, and they do so every day in in the quiet uh, electronic cool war that's going on with us and with others. I wonder to what extent the U.S. needs to see Russia necessarily as a foe in this way and whether Russia really does see the U.S. as a target because when you look at the commonalities among the U.S. and Russia, there was a major arms control agreement that has been achieved. There is increased cooperation on Afghanistan, if not on Iran. There's cooperation on the space program. Why would Russia see the U.S. as an enemy or a target right now? I think the Russians are concerned about the notion that the shadow cast by the American uh, military machine upon the world is, is quite great. There's concern in Russia because what we call strategic defense, they see as a means of disarming their nuclear arsenal. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that uh, Russians are concerned about us. And, and there are some reasons why, of course, we have to be concerned about uh, the Russians. Look at their uh, support for the Assad regime. Uh, look at the manner in which they have helped to slow down efforts to prevent Iranian proliferation. Our interests don't coincide. While there may be areas of cooperation, there will also be areas of competition. Are those areas of competition necessarily areas that need to be addressed militarily versus diplomatically? We have had a generally friendly relationship with this country, save for the Cold War period, uh, over the past two centuries. My hope is that we can return to something like that, but we can't avert our gaze from these areas of competition. John Arquilla is chair of the Special Operations Program at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He spoke to us from the studios at KAZU in Seaside, California. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you, Lisa. Across India and Pakistan, millions are mourning the death of the Pakistani singer Mehdi Hassan. He was 84 years old. Poor health had largely kept him from recording and performing for the past 20 years. Mehdi Hassan sang several styles of South Asian music, but he was known as the King of Ghazal. The world's Arun Roth wrote this appreciation. <laughs> Legendary Bollywood singer Lata Mangeshkar said that Mehdi Hassan sang with the voice of God, and there's certainly a divine quality to his singing. What's always struck me about Ghazal is how unabashedly secular the lyrics are. Ghazals are written in a strict form, and the songs are all about love. And not just any love. Ghazals celebrate illicit, forbidden love. The songs are practically dripping with erotic longing. 
And the type of love that's being celebrated is, well, it's kind of nasty. It's the kind of crazy, obsessive, dangerous love that you'd associate with a Delta blues ballad or a bloody Italian tragic opera. The love is described like an addiction, the lover a deadly assassin. No one brought these stories alive more than Mehdi Hassan, and millions in Pakistan and India adored him for it. While the lyrics may be impure, they're written in the style of high literature. And part of Mehdi Hassan's genius was singing these words in a way that appealed to such a large audience, even in religiously conservative communities. It's actually the expression of the lyric through the music, through the voice, through the melody that makes it acceptable in many ways. Najma Akhtar lives in London and sings traditional ghazals and modern jazz-inflected versions. He had such a special voice and such a very rare quality in his voice. He could communicate the very essence of sorrow and pain and at the same time happiness and joy. And he could express that all in his voice quality. But not only the voice quality, it was what he did with his voice. It was undescribable. She says Ghazal has become increasingly popular because it hits a kind of Goldilocks spot. It's not as heavy as classical. Indian classical music can get really heavy and long and complicated. And then it's not as commercial as Bollywood or pop or fusion and not as simple as folk. So it sits somewhere in the middle. It kind of teases people, attracts people, tests people. She credits Mehdi Hassan with inspiring new generations of Ghazal singers who, like her, experiment with the form. The fact that Hassan inspired so many to take Ghazal in new and varied directions ironically means there will never be another like him, the undisputed king of Ghazal. For the world, I'm Arun Ra. We have a video of the late Mehdi Hassan in live performance at theworld.org. More news coming up. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Every good farmer or gardener knows that sometimes you need more than the sun and water to make things grow. You need to give plants food. Fertilizers can be organic, such as manure, but most growers these days rely on chemical fertilizers. They used almost 200 million tons of the stuff last year. Most of the chemical compounds in fertilizer are abundant and easy to produce, but one key element essential for global food production is much less common. Jory Lewis has our story. David Vicari teaches environmental engineering at Stevens Institute in New Jersey. He explores the cycles of nitrogen and carbon, two elements that are vital for agriculture. There's a third that's just as important, but Vicari never thought much about it until several years ago, phosphorus. Suddenly I said to myself, where does this come from? You know, nobody talked about it. I even once asked a farmer friend, where does phosphorus come from? And his answer was Agway. He didn't even know. So Vicari did the natural thing. I Googled it. 
That's when he learned that most phosphorus used in fertilizer comes from mines, and that unlike carbon and nitrogen, it's a very limited resource. I popped an analysis that there was a possibility that we would use up those known reserves uh, in a century, a lifetime. And I found that alarming, and I started to study the issue. What he learned brought him across the ocean to the Kingdom of Morocco. This is the Haribga mine in Morocco's phosphate plateau, where a machine the size of a 10-story building digs massive holes into the earth. In each drag, the machine unearths about 100 tons of sand and rock to expose the phosphate rock below. Phosphate rocks are minerals that are high in phosphorus. It turns out they occur in significant amounts in only a handful of countries. And Morocco has the mother load, more than two-thirds of the known reserves worldwide. As those reserves have been drawn down elsewhere, the world is increasingly coming to Morocco. And Morocco is responding by building huge phosphorus mining and processing operations. OCP has engaged in massive investment plan, $15 billion over the next 10 years. That's Mohamed Ibn Abdel Jalil of Morocco's state-owned phosphate company, OCP. And the reason we're doing this is because this natural resource is there for us, but also for our future generations. So we, we have the responsibility to make sure that it is used and produced appropriately and responsibly. For years, the United States was one of the biggest phosphate producers, but now its reserves are nearly tapped out. And big reserves elsewhere are not only limited, they're also located in countries where supply could be uncertain. Places like China, Iraq, and Syria. That's important because in a world of scarce and unequally distributed resources, anything could happen. In a crisis, the haves might hoard and the have-nots, well, they would just suffer. Which is just what happened in 2007 and 2008 when food prices shot up around the world. Prices of fertilizer and phosphorus shot up too. To protect its domestic supply, China increased its export tariff on phosphates, a move that effectively stopped exports for a time. That's about the same time that people like David Vicari started to hear about the notion of peak phosphate. Concerns that the world was heading into a crunch for a key ingredient in the global food chain. But Mohammed Ibn Abdel Jalil says the idea was news to Morocco. We were very surprised to hear about this peak phosphate because certainly by the measures that we had seen, you know, there were hundreds of years worth of reserves. That's hundreds with an S. Morocco certainly isn't worried about running out of phosphate. New studies have revealed new phosphate resources all over the world. And after the 2008 supply squeeze, the price of phosphate settled at a new, much higher level. That alone has jump-started exploration, with mining companies going after supplies and using technology that had been too expensive before. But the warnings still continue. There might be other limiting factors to actually producing more and more phosphate. Isa Krushevska is a sustainable agriculture campaigner for Greenpeace. She says talk about new phosphate mines and technology is missing the point. Water needed to process the rock could become scarce, she says, as it already is in some parts of Morocco. Or the rising cost of mining could price out some customers. And Krushevska says that even an unlimited supply wouldn't be a good thing. Because we've already got too much phosphate where we don't want it. We are living in a sea of nutrients. It turns out that a lot of fertilizer applied around the world doesn't actually help crops grow. 
Instead, it flows into nearby waterways where it causes big environmental problems. So Krushewska says the key isn't just to dig up more. We should be better at capturing the phosphate that's already in the system rather than just mining more and more of it because that's got to stop somewhere. Fortunately, phosphorus isn't a single-use product like gasoline. It can be used over and over as long as you capture it in some way. David Vicari of the Stevens Institute likes the idea of recycling. Reducing the losses in the cycle means improving agricultural efficiency. That's the amount of crop you get for each input. For fertilizer, you can increase efficiency by reducing soil erosion, increasing organic matter in the soil, and applying the fertilizer more carefully. But Vakari says there are trade-offs, especially with an ever-growing demand for food. That's um, quite a challenge, and it means you really need to optimize yields. Population growth may be working against us. Which means that however you look at it, phosphorus is going to continue to be a flashpoint in the global food supply, with swirling concerns over how much there is, how it's mined and processed, and how it's used. And it leaves Morocco sitting pretty, with literally mountains of a limited resource that the world just can't seem to get enough of. For The World, I'm Jory Lewis, Haribga, Morocco. Jory's report was produced with help from the Institute of Current World Affairs. GeoQuiz today, we're looking for a city that's hosting a major fashion show this week. Now, if Paris, Milan, or London come to mind, you're way off track. It's Fashion Week in the West African nation of Senegal. More than 30 top African designers are in town. Actually, they're in Senegal's largest city. It's the westernmost city on the African continent. Designers are there now to showcase their creations, bold prints, stylish accessories, all designs that reflect Africa's varied cultures. One designer hopes the fashion show will help launch a chain of African designer shops across the continent. We want to open up three stores in Senegal, in Accra, in Abidjan, where you can find designers. It's going to be like a espace de créateur. Like we will have lots of brands, like 25 designers in a shop. That's what we're aiming to. Name this West African city that's Africa's fashion capital at least this week, if you can. hit from Veracruz is on the way. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Toronto prepares to host the 2015 Pan American Games, but some in the city question the huge price tag. And later, how millions in drug cartel money got laundered in the U.S. through horse racing and how the suspects were discovered. Their passion for horses got the better of them. These stories and more coming up. 
WERI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC, World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. It may seem obvious that breathing black smoke belched from diesel vehicles is bad for you, but the World Health Organization has ratcheted up its assessment of just how bad. The WHO had long considered diesel fumes a probable cause of cancer. Well, a new assessment concludes that the fumes definitely do cause cancer, putting diesel exhaust in the same category as asbestos. Here's Christopher Portier, who headed the WHO's reassessment. Diesel exhaust exposures are carcinogenic to humans, a group one carcinogen, the highest level you can possibly have. Health experts hope this stark announcement will prod governments around the world to clean up diesel exhaust. Our health and science editor, David Barron, is here to explain what is so carcinogenic in diesel fuel. What makes it bad for you, David? Well, the bad stuff in diesel is all of those tiny particles of soot that come out and they lodge in your lungs. And they're bad for many reasons, not just cancer, but they, of course, can exacerbate breathing problems, asthma, for instance. They also can can exacerbate cardiovascular disease, heart disease. Um, a number of studies over the years have shown that breathing those tiny particles of soot increases the overall risk of death. And apparently it's not the amount of diesel that you're exposed to. It's the kind of diesel and and what it's made up of. Well, that's right. In fact, here in the United States, we've had an ongoing push to clean up diesel fuel and diesel engines. The, The issue in diesel fuel is the sulfur content. And in the United States, we have dramatically reduced the amount of sulfur in our fuel. And that by itself has cleaned up the exhaust quite a bit. But on top of that, when you use low sulfur fuel, you can use new, much cleaner diesel engines. And when you use the new engines with the new fuel, the emissions are reduced by well over 90%. And everyone agrees that, again, using the latest fuel, the latest technology in the United States, the risk goes way, way down. Okay, so it's gone down here in the United States. It's gone down in Canada because the cleaner diesel fuel is being used. Uh, Where isn't it being used? Right. The way I see it, this WHO announcement has a much, much bigger impact on what's going on in the developing world than in the developed world. If you look at a map of where in the world you can get low sulfur fuel, and we're going to put a link to this at theworld.org, you'll see that in the U.S., in Europe, in Australia, in Japan, we're using this low sulfur fuel. But if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, China, Latin America, they're using the much dirtier diesel fuel which is bad not only in and of itself, but it means they can't even use the new type of diesel engines. And so if we're ever going to clean up diesel in most of the world, we first need to get to the low sulfur fuel. Okay, so the fuel has to be cleaner, and then the the buses and trucks have to be replaced and newer so they can use the, the cleaner fuel. What's getting in the way of that happening, bringing the standards of many parts of the world right now to that of, say, the U.S. and Canada? Well, very simply, it's money. Uh, taking the sulfur out of fuel is costly. It means it means rebuilding refineries uh, and spending that extra money. And in a lot of countries in the world, the petroleum companies are state-owned. So you're talking about the government, in essence, regulating itself. So there's a, understandably a reluctance to spend the money to clean up the diesel fuel. And the big hope among 
um, environmentalists and health experts is that this WHO announcement, which carries a lot of weight, particularly in the developing world, that this could be an extra push for countries to make that investment in the cleaner fuels and then the cleaner uh, diesel engines as well. David Barron, the world's health and science editor, thank you very much. You're welcome. The brother of a top Mexican drug lord was arrested yesterday here in the U.S. Jose Trevino Morales, his wife, and several other people were all arrested at a horse ranch in Oklahoma. They were charged with laundering millions of dollars in drug cartel money through a horse breeding and racing operation. Trevino is the brother of the Zetas cartel leader, Miguel Angel Trevino, who's one of the most feared men in Mexico. New York Times reporter Ginger Thompson has been investigating the Trevino brothers' horse racing business. Her story is in today's Times. Ginger, who is the man who was arrested yesterday, one of those arrested, Jose Trevino Morales? Jose Trevino is a guy who described himself as a brick mason um, and told people that he had made his money in the construction business in Dallas until his brothers convinced him to get into the horse business. Okay, tell us about this one particular brother, Miguel Angel Trevino Morales. Well, Miguel Angel Trevino Morales is known as Zeta 40 or Z40. Um, he is now the second in command of the Setas cartel, and the Setas cartel is known primarily for its brutality and its abilities to expand almost like an invasion force into territories across Mexico. It is one of the most brutal cartels and so widely feared that people in its territory along the South Texas border are even reluctant to say the name Seta. So how did it get to be that these stables in Oklahoma became known as the Zeta stables? And what's the significance of that? His property in in, uh, Oklahoma was a a ranch that he had, uh, Jose Trevino, had recently established. But indeed, the setas had stables in Ruidoso, New Mexico, that were considered setas stables. They had stables at Los Alamitos Racetrack. This cartel, rather than sort of keeping a low profile, did almost the opposite. It was these Zeta leaders were buying some of the biggest horses in quarter horse racing, and they had won all of the biggest races in quarter horse racing, including the All-American Futurity, which is kind of the, uh, the Kentucky Derby of quarter horse racing. So that's a pretty brazen way to do business. Why did they work so openly? I mean, why not be more discreet unless they thought that their business was impenetrable somehow? that the um, their passion for horses got the better of them. I mean, the fact is the Setas and these Trevino brothers in particular are known for being very passionate about quarter horses. They've been racing horses for years now. It's a very big sport in uh, the northern Mexico border area, and, and horses are considered an important status symbol. And so when they moved into American quarter horse racing, they couldn't help themselves. They, they, they wanted to buy big horses, and they, and they wanted to win. The Trevino brothers in the United States were becoming a very prominent, very successful quarter horse family. In the in Mexico, however, the Trevino brothers were associated with some of the most violent, vicious, horrible crimes um, in recent Mexican history. 
given that kind of backdrop, I wonder about your own reporting on this story because the Zetas cartel has in the past targeted journalists. The cartel is known as being ruthless. Um, were you at all threatened that you can tell us in terms of your reporting the story? I was never threatened. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the reason for that is that, uh, you know, I I didn't make it known that I was looking um, specifically at Jose Trevino. I did a lot of reporting that, that made it appear I was looking at something other than him directly. Um, it was complicated, and and it took us a lot longer uh, to finish the story because of that. Um, but yes, we thought, you know, about safety at every turn, and not just for my safety, but really for the safety of the people who spoke to me, which is why so many uh, people in my story are, are unidentified. Um, it was mostly for the sake of their safety. Thank you for telling us the story that appears in today's New York Times. New York Times reporter Ginger Thompson on the Trevino Brothers horse racing business. We've got a link to the story on our website, theworld.org. Thanks a lot, Ginger. Thank you. The 2012 London Olympics are six weeks away now. The British capital is feverishly preparing for the big event. Meanwhile, here in North America, one city is preparing for its own summer games. Toronto will host the Pan American Games in 2015. Some 10,000 athletes from 41 Western Hemisphere countries will attend. And in both London and Toronto, folks are asking the same question. Is hosting a major sporting event a blessing or a curse? The world's Jason Margolis has more from Toronto. Just east of downtown Toronto, you can visit the future site of the Athletes' Village for the 2015 Pan Am Games. It's just a bunch of dirt and trucks right now. This was a a mixed bag of industrial uses, brickworks, tanneries, you name it, it was here. Uh, It was just really a, a very derelict industrial area that we had to clean off. John Campbell is the president and CEO of Waterfront Toronto, an organization tasked with revitalizing the city's shoreline. Campbell says they had long planned condos and townhouses here, but there's nothing like a deadline to get things going. And so the games really are coming in as a catalyst to move it forward. We are on our way to doing it, but at a slower rate. So it's really advanced the development substantially. And that, of course, helps other development around because the whole activity breeds more activity. For example, Toronto is building a rail line to connect the airport to downtown, as well as new stadiums, fields, and aquatic centers. The opening and closing ceremonies will take place in downtown Toronto, where the Blue Jays play baseball. I met Charles Sousa outside the stadium before a ball game. He's the Ontario provincial lawmaker responsible for overseeing the Pan Am Games. This is going to be a huge economic boost to the city and to the region. We are anticipating over 15,000 new jobs just by the creation of some of the venues. And it's enabling us to have infrastructure close at home so that we can continue to build on our, our great city. He adds that Toronto also gets to host some of the world's greatest athletes for two weeks. Inside the stadium, I watched the Blue Jays game with Paul Henderson, a past Olympian in sailing and former member of the International Olympic Committee. He led Toronto's failed bid for the 1996 Summer Olympics. When that didn't pan out, he turned his attention to the Pan Am Games. I was the guy who had the idea to bring the games here because I wanted to get facilities for amateur sport, for Olympic sport, in this region because we don't have many. So the way to get them 
is to go and get one of these games because it makes the politicians deliver. They have to be ready on that Friday night in 2015. He's glad the new facilities are finally getting built, but is worried about the way it's happening. He says event organizers are too focused on a two-week event that will come and go. For example, Henderson asks, why are they building a massive aquatic center with two Olympic-sized swimming pools and 3,200 permanent seats? He says large swimming stadiums don't make sense. They found that in Beijing. They can't use it. In most swimming competitions, you can only get 2,000 people to come at any time. He adds that the Aquatic Center is a 30-minute ride from Toronto's city centre without traffic. And there's no easy way to get there on public transportation. I drove out to the site, right now a hole in the ground, with Charles Smedmore. Smedmore is an accountant and self-styled government watchdog. He questions why taxpayers are spending more than a billion dollars for what he calls a second-rate event. It's not going to be much more than a little addendum at the end of the sports broadcast on the evening news. Smedmore has run the numbers and doesn't like what he's seeing. Most Olympics end up being money losers, but they sell a lot of tickets, broadcast rights, and sponsorships along the way to recoup costs. And sometimes they even make money. Smedmore says that won't be happening in Toronto. We're spending $1.4 billion officially for something that's only going to have gate of $146 million. And I can't think of any Broadway producer who puts on a show where you're only going to be taking in 10% of what you spend at the box office. Smedmore says the event organizers aren't being transparent or realistic about costs. For example, he says the Pan Am Games don't need an indoor cycling track called a velodrome. He says a far less costly outdoor track would do just fine. But Ian Troop defends the large infrastructure projects. He's the CEO of Toronto 2015. He says structures like the velodrome are being built for versatility beyond the games. This is a 250-meter track, so the inside of this becomes a wonderful opportunity for a community center. It can fit three or four basketball courts, three-quarters of a soccer pitch. It's that kind of versatility which ensures you've got revenue streams going in there, you've got users using the thing, and it's got high relevance for that community after the games are over. And that's what we're trying to do, and the velo is a great example of that. Troop adds that an indoor cycling track can attract future international sporting events. And while the Pan Am Games aren't the Olympics, many in Toronto see them as a tryout of sorts. They look to the case of Rio de Janeiro. That city hosted the Pan Am Games in 2007. Two years later, they were awarded the grand prize, the Summer Olympics, for 2016. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Toronto. You can see a video version of Jason's report at theworld.org or catch it on BBC World News America tonight on many PBS stations. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 central, on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Dozens of top African fashion designers are taking part in the Dakar Fashion Week. Dakar, the capital of Senegal, is the answer to today's geo-quiz. The BBC's Thomas Fessy says organizers are hoping Dakar Fashion Week will boost the profile of Africa's emerging fashion industry. 
For this 10th edition of the Fashion Week here in Dakar, designers are coming from Senegal, of course, but also Ghana, Nigeria, Mozambique, Ivory Coast, Mali or Cameroon. Most of them will showcase pure haute couture clothing collections, uh, but others will present their ready-to-wear design clothes. Uh, well, I'm joined by the founder of the Dakar Fashion Week, the Senegalese designer Adama Paris. So who are the designers aiming their clothes at? I think that a designer, they come to show their design first of all. Even uh, They don't even think about buyers first. They wanted to show what they do in Africa because they don't have that like much opportunity to show in a real stage and um, they design to African people. But their target is like uh, some of them who do ready to wear and the others are more for upper class, people who got more money and we got a bunch in Africa. <laughs> of people who got money. They, they not a lot, but they can spend a lot of money. There are so many uh, well-established global brands now. Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible for those designers who are doing ready-to-wear collections and aiming at uh, a middle-class uh, type of customers in Africa, is it possible for them to compete with those uh, global brands? Not yet, but uh, we're getting there. Like uh, You can tell that uh, these past years, uh, fashion in Africa going stronger and stronger. So African themselves realize that they need to buy from their own designers. Now they're more proud to wear African fabric, and, and I think that that fact will help us get there. The particular thing in Africa is that in many countries, over 50% of the population live under the poverty line. How do you bring fashion to the broader public? How do you make it relevant when poverty is so large? It's not because you're poor that you don't like nice things. and especially. But you can't afford it, maybe. Yeah, you can't afford it, but uh, there's so many things that you can't afford. And it's not because uh, you can afford it that it's not relevant, right? To me, it's just like fashion is like it's right. reading. It's like looking at the painting. It's just art. So everybody in this herd need like to have like something you can uh, dream about. And we invite every year like schools and the street kids to come see the show. For us, it's just a way to promote fashion and also to be part of what's happening in our country. And I think that's really relevant to poor people that they're part of something. You know, it's just good to think about glam and glitter. It's even if I can't afford having a Porsche, but I dream about it, you know, so. Okay, well, Adama Paris, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. That was the BBC's West Africa correspondent, Thomas Fessy, speaking with Senegal designer Adama Paris. Finally today, the Mexican state of Veracruz. It's nestled along the Gulf of Mexico's central coast. It's a place of beaches and crumbling colonial glory, a far cry from the maddening crowds of New York City. One thing the two places share, though, is Son Jorocho. That's a musical style native to Veracruz that's now taking root in New York, thanks largely to the group Radio Jorocho. Reporter Bruce Wallace has our story. There's this great forward propulsion in San Jarocho songs. I'd listened for a while before I figured out that it came, kind of obviously, from the feet. The percussion in San Jarocho is zapateado, a dancer stomping a rhythm out on top of a wooden platform. Radio Horocho's Julio del Palacio told me that Zapateado is actually born out of the rhythm of indigenous marches. Songs played during these marches pick up the rhythm of the crowd walking down a street. Del Palacio took some lessons in Horocho basics, but she learned the most from the source. 
fandangos, communal parties in Veracruz where people bring instruments and play traditional songs. That's actually how this music is learned. You go to a fandango and you practice and practice and practice and you watch a lot. Radio Horocho started out 10 years ago playing the San Horocho classics, including this one, which, even if you don't think you recognize it, you do. Did you get it? Here's a hint. Radio Hirocho recorded an album of classics, including this arrangement of La Bamba, in 2009. For their new album, though, they wanted to write their own songs. There's nothing we could give to San Jarocho if we keep playing traditional songs or rearranging traditional songs. Gabriel Guzman is the band's main songwriter. So we thought, maybe if we have the other approach and we become a band that writes, produces, and plays their own songs, we can give something else. One part of this new approach is adapting Hirocho traditions to the rapid pace of New York City life. So we took a San Jarocho rhythm theme, and then we added lyrics that were more in tune with what we live or what we think about love, and less about birds and rivers and flowers and stuff like that, which we love, but that's not our, our environment. Another way their originals diverge from the older songs is in their brevity. Here's a song for you. Boom. There it is. Like, like a punk band. <laughs> the songs are short and really direct, and there's no time for more. Most songs on the new album clock in around four minutes. At Fandango's, solo after solo push songs toward ten minutes. Radio Horocho has, to be sure, held on to a lot of Horocho elements. This is the album's title track, Café Café. Café Café, I start with the phrase Amada Marcelina, which is part of a very famous song called Colas. So there's echoes everywhere on the Zapateado. Julia, when she's dancing or when there's little parts in the in our original songs, definitely I think there's echoes of the, of the Fandango tradition because that's the purpose. There's, that's the purpose, that we come from there and we're trying to do our own thing. And their original songs still have this emotional balance that Julio del Palacio says is fundamental to San Jarocho. It's very lively at the same time that it uh, sort of deals with the not-so-happy aspects of life in Mexico. This one is for sure the saddest on the album. In fact, its title, La Tristeza, means sadness. The lyrics are a combination of verses written by Guzman, verses written by Del Palacio, and a few traditional ones collected by Del Palacio's father. The chorus says, sad the night without a moon, sad to see without foam, but the saddest is to live without hope. A course like that is sad in any language. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace. That's our program today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector, Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.